Welcome back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look into the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Last week, Donald Trump told Fox News' Maria Bartiromos that he ordered a missile strike in Iraq. So what happens, as I said, we've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. But actually... It was Syria. Well, you headed to Syria. Yes, heading toward Syria. He was very focused on the cake. He was so focused on the cake. He definitely knew all the details of the cake. (laughs) Not so much about the country that he just bombed. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. It's just there's a lot to parse out. First, he's very he's describing this dessert he had with Chinese President Xi, and he's talking about the dessert they had. And then he's like, we fired this missile strike, and I told him, and he's very impressed that all the missiles hit their target. And I said, Mr. President, let me explain something to you. This is during dessert. We've just fired 59 missiles, all of which hit, by the way, unbelievable, from you know, hundreds of miles away. Which, honestly, should we still be impressed by that? Doesn't that seem like it's—it should be a given? I think that Donald Trump, he thinks he's, in a, like, on a movie set. Yeah, and he's like, it's whoa, like, that worked. Yeah, it's <laughs> like—I can't even think of a movie—like, what is, like, a movie, an action movie? Anyway, he's, any like, movie. playing president <laughs> in any movie, really— So he's like, this is like a scene from a movie where the president is eating cake at his winter home and all of a sudden he has to make a decision on whether or not to launch a missile. And he does it. Yeah. Except it's real life. Except it's real life. Just with him being impressed that all the missiles hit, I have a friend who thinks that all basketball players should hit every three-point shot because it's their job. Like, if it's your job to make a basket, why should we be, like, surprised and impressed you made a basket? If it's your job as a missile to hit a target, like, you don't deserve congrats. You're just doing your job. That's very true. That's all I'm saying. Later in the episode, we'll be speaking with the Environmental Defense Fund's Lindy von Mutius about Trump's recent executive order ruining the world and also his new EPA budget. And so by allowing pollution levels to go up— President Trump's order will literally cost thousands of American lives. But first, our week in weenies. Our first weenie of the week is a man who looks like a weenie. It's funny how all of these men really do look like weenies physically. It's Eric Trump. He's in his young 30s. Um, <laughs> why did I say that? His young 30s. <laughs> He's how Eric. I like to be referred to in my young 30s. I don't know why I said it. Anyway, he's supposed to be running the family business and not involved in politics at all. But somehow he keeps saying political thing. He, like, can't help himself from fucking everything up for his family. Not that they're, like, having trouble doing it. But he's just contributing. So this week he did an interview with The Telegraph. And he said a number of just chef kiss quotes. He said, is, and then they put in brackets, running the family business. Nepotism? Absolutely. Is that also a beautiful thing? Absolutely. Family business is a beautiful thing. The same applies for Ivanka. Ivanka is by his side in Washington. He's calling nepotism a beautiful thing. I think it's clear why Eric Trump is not one of the Trumps. 
<laughs> in the White House right now. I know. He's, he's like, like the id of the Trump family. So he says what they That's none so of them want true. anyone else to actually put into words. Okay, here's more of him being the id he, of the strike that Donald Trump thought was at Iraq, but it was actually at Syria. He said, if there was anything that Syria did, it was to validate the fact that there is no Russia tie. I was like, yeah, babe, we all were thinking it. Like, you yeah, can't thanks, actually thanks say for saying it. That. Yeah. <laughs> he also confirmed that his that Trump's decision to bomb the airbase and to punish Assad for the sarin gas attack was influenced not by his own terrible foreign policy instincts, but by Ivanka, who said that she was heartbroken and outraged by the atrocity. And just like as an aside— because of that, it led to my first ever, like, true viral tweet. Are you going to direct us to the tweet? It's HTTPS. I'm waiting in suspense. Calling, call, backslash, backslash. Okay, it's just like a, it's just like a, that quote, NBC News 9, and I, like, quote, tweeted it, and I said, Daddy, please bomb Syria, Daddy. <laughs> like, she said that. That's a great, that's a great tweet, Joanna. Thank you. I don't want to self-promote, but, like, I thought it was worth mentioning. Also, I would like to note that Syrian refugees are still banned from the U.S. So thank you for noting that. Yeah, I'm. That wasn't me being not, sarcastic. Not, I was actually thinking you were noting it. Yeah. to not. let the PBS people into our country just to bomb an airbase. Yeah, broken and outraged enough to further obliterate them, so that I guess if the country doesn't exist, you don't have anyone to save. There's nobody to feel sad about. Yeah, that's one approach, I suppose. Okay. All right, so our next weenie is a man named Robert Bentley, who until this past week was the governor of Alabama, but he had to resign, and (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why he said it like that. He did. I've always believed the honor of serving as your governor was a calling that God placed on my life. I've not always made the right choices. I've not always said the right things. Though I have sometimes failed, I've always tried to live up to the high expectations the people place on the person who holds this esteemed office. So he resigned as a governor, and he has promised to never seek public office again. He has pled guilty to two misdemeanors over an impeachment investigation that found that he'd been for years carrying on an affair with a former aide named Rebecca Mason. And that's not even, that's not like the really crazy part. The really crazy part is that in his like attempt to keep this affair going, he brought in so many public officials into this scandal. Like he harassed and reportedly harassed and intimidated several public officials, including a cop, uh, the attorney, state's attorney general's office, it involved a Senate race and more. And it was just <laughs> like the such whole a destructive state affair. of Alabama <laughs> was in, embroiled in this. It's so absurd that it feels more like a plot from a Coen Brothers movie than real life. That would be life. such a good movie. It would be such a good movie. I'd like and to buy the rights. I would also like to add that he is not the first Alabama governor to be, like, found or be investigated in this way. Actually... Since the 1990s, three of the past six governors of Alabama have been found guilty of crimes. Okay, we need a data journalist to be employed by the podcast so that we can do a big-time dicks heat map because I feel like there are certain parts of the country. Being a dick is universal. Dicks are universal. They're found everywhere. 
naturally occurring in the wild of government. But I do feel like maybe there are some trends about where they appear more often. We're definitely, we've been doing this for a while. There are definitely some trends. They tend to be white, older white men, people named with the last name Trump. <laughs> and, sure, if you have the last name Trump. And politicians from the South, it The seems. statistics, they, your chances go way up. I mean, I wouldn't say we're doing a sociological experiment, but I also wouldn't say we aren't. Okay, the next dick is Sean Spicer, the... Very adorable, very evil, bumbling little troll who is somehow at once both orange and chalky. At a press briefing this week, Spicer did what you're never supposed to do, which is compare dictators, specifically comparing anybody with Hitler. But he compared Assad with Hitler, saying that Hitler is less bad than Assad because— Someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to the— to the to using chemical weapons. So you have to, if you're Russia, ask yourself, is this a country that you and a regime that you want to align yourself with? He then was given an opportunity by a reporter to clarify what he meant, in which he dug himself into an even deeper, stupider hole. There was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that Ashad is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I I understand your point, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. There was not... In the in the he brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that, but I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns. It was brought to so the use of it. I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent. I don't even have anything to say after that. (laughs) (laughs) I I just wanted to play the clip, but then we don't have to say anything else. There's nothing. (laughs) There's really nothing more to say. There's nothing to say. Holocaust centers. We've all had a good laugh, and now hopefully when you're listening to this again, you can just remember it and laugh once more. Okay, so those are our three weenies, and now for our quintessential weenie, Paul Ryan, we've introduced a new segment called What Hole Is Paul Ryan Hiding In? Because we've noticed that Paul Ryan does a new weenie thing pretty much every week. So we don't want to, like, take a weenie slot when he, we know it's always going to be his. Like, we right. want to give everyone else a chance. It's really an honor, almost. <laughs> yeah. In a fucked up way. Um, so, Joanna, what hole is Paul Ryan hiding in this week? Okay, I actually don't know. Because for some reason, I feel like I've gone seven days without thinking about him. He's been laying low this week. I guess if I had to guess what hole he was hiding in, I think he would be hiding in his private bathroom. In his office, the one that, like, goes off his office. Well, he very well may be. <laughs> so this is more of an indirect hole. That okay. he's, like a figurative that, yeah, this hole. this is like a hole, like, Paul Ryan is standing and everyone's sort of digging holes around him and he can't move. <laughs> That's what this is, the situation is. So it's like the negative space of yeah. the hole. He's got a lot of negative space <laughs> around him um, because his tax reform policy that he proposed uh, in 2016— is looking like it's failing spectacularly. He proposed this idea that was called a border adjustment that would basically tax imports and then create a subsidy for exports. And this has been criticized by both Republicans and Democrats and nonpartisan organizations for being terrible in all sorts of different ways. 
So retailers say that this is going to increase taxes on any good that's imported in. So like like for for Walmart, so like 90% of things that you buy at Walmart, are the prices are going to go up. Democrats and nonpartisan groups have pointed out that his new plan is going to result in trillions of dollars of tax cuts for rich Americans, but would not really help lower income Americans and would then exacerbate inequality. And then Republicans are just against the the idea of, of increasing those taxes on goods. So no one is happy with this plan. And Paul Ryan is just, I don't know, he's hiding in his bathroom while everyone rips his plan apart. I feel like one constant for Paul Ryan is never pleasing anyone. I wonder if he's ever pleased another person in any way. <laughs> he sort of pleased me when he released those photos of him working out at the gym. The, those photos pleased you, Prachi? Well, they amused me. <laughs> I wouldn't please. say please. I think he said please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to regret that. <laughs> It's recorded. You can never unrecord it. to our Dick of the Week. This week, it's the Environmental Protection Agency and also kind of Scott Pruitt. And amazingly, this week, we're joined by Ellie Sheckett of Jezebel. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming here. She's our resident. She's Jezebel's resident climate expert and also (laughs) fearer of its effects. Sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So specifically... This week, we're going to be talking about Trump's changes to our environmental policy. So when you think of the Obama administration, you think of basically two, or at least I do. You guys can tell me if you don't. I think of two (laughs) major achievements. I think of the Affordable Care Act and also the Clean Action Plan and his Paris Climate Agreement. So I think of like health and climate. Trump already tried to ruin the first one, but he didn't. And Then at the end of March and kind of throughout his administration, he's been trying to ruin the second. So on March 28th, he signed an executive order nullifying Obama's clean power plan and kind of ruining a few elements of his clean action plan. And we can talk in more specifics later in our other interview. So the clean power plan, it would have closed coal-fired power plants and stopped the construction of new coal-fired power plants and replace them with wind and solar farms. And when Trump signed the executive order, he was very like, I mean, he signed it next to coal miners. He signed it in front of a bunch of coal miners. And he kept saying, we're going to have clean coal. We're going to have very, very clean coal. He gave one of them his pen as a present, which was really nice. So how about we give the pen? It's a great pen. How about we give that to the miners? Honestly, that was generous. Yeah, generous. (laughs) So this plan is good for coal miners, kind of exclusively, because I don't really get who else it would be good for, since the earth is 
ours. Among other things, it completely destroys our commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement, which is a global agreement that Obama famously participated in. And it's meant to keep the planet from warming more than 3.6 degrees, which the New York Times reports that that's the level at which the Earth will be quote, irrevocably locked into a future of severe droughts, floods, rising sea levels, and food shortages. Fun. <laughs> I mean, when I think about Obama's climate legacy, I think about the Clean Power Plan and the Paris Climate Agreement. And I feel like when I think about Trump's climate legacy, I just sort of think about, like, a little six-year-old boy um, setting fire to an ant with a magnifying glass. <laughs> That's just so to true. See what That's and a great summary and of Trump's view on the environment. And we're all the ants. Yeah, we're the ants. The ants <laughs> are us. Yes. Uh, so as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, Obama promised to cut emissions 26% from the 2005 levels, and he said he would do this before 2025. And With this executive order, without the Clean Power Plan and without these changes that he attempted to make, this feels fairly impossible. Trump has also said that he would formally withdraw from the Paris Agreement, though he hasn't yet, and it's unclear if he will, although he, in practice, basically has. So it's basically up now to the other biggest carbon producers like China and Brazil and India to take on the burden that we have shit out. (laughs) Trump also and Scott Pruitt also released a new budget for the EPA, which would shrink the EPA from the EPA's budget from $8.1 billion to $5.7 billion. It would, which is a lot, it would eliminate 15,000 jobs. Uh, it would decrease all sorts of grants, some grants that would help monitor public water systems. So things like Flint didn't happen again. It would basically eliminate all regional cleanup programs. It would decrease the budgets of programs that enforce environmental law and police environmental fenders from $10 million to $4 million, with one very notable exception when it comes to Scott Pruitt's security detail. So Scott Pruitt, the new EPA chief, has requested 10 additional full-time security staff for round-the-clock detail, which is not something that an EPA chief would ever need unless, I don't know, he was threatening people's lives and maybe people felt like he was a real danger. It feels like maybe there's a snowflake in the building. (laughs) Who's the snowflake? Who do you think the snowflake is? Scott Pruitt. He's the snowflake. He's the snowflake. (laughs) Although, thanks to Scott Pruitt, there will no longer be any snowflakes. Correct. Like physical ones Um, because of global warming. Okay, so... The New York Times has a good guide to all the programs that the budget proposes cutting, super funds, programs that research, that research things like endocrine disruptors, like chemical things in, due to pollution that are physically messing you up. Like name, I don't know, if we could go around in a circle and name something that we're scared of, like the EPA has made that more scary. I mean, we don't actually have to. <laughs> you guys both looked at me like, what the fuck? <laughs> The first thing that came to my mind was amusement parks, even though I hate amusement parks. I don't know why. I was just like, the amusement parks are going to be less safe. I just, my mind just went blank and I, I gave it a look. That's what happened, to be honest. Okay. That was a bad idea to spring it on you. Um, but basically, all of these come from, I mean, these policies clearly come from two things. One, money from lobbyists. <laughs> 
probably. <laughs> and also a fundamental misunderstanding of what climate change even is or if it exists. Ellie. Yes. Can you talk about that? Oh, my gosh. I would love to. <laughs> it's my favorite story. So there's obviously about as much scientific consensus about the basic facts behind climate change as there is about any other thing. But in the United States, one of the many special things about our wonderful country is that belief in climate science is extremely polarized by party, by political party. And it wasn't always this way, although conservatives have never been, you know, huge fans of the environment, I would say. But the EPA was founded by Richard Nixon and George W. Bush you know, he wasn't like a friend to the environment, but he didn't put somebody in charge of the EPA that wanted to dismantle it. And even in 2008, both presidential candidates said that climate change was an issue. Um, so the roots of climate change denial go back to the 90s, but they, the political polarization became really extreme um, relatively recently following the Citizens United case in 2010, which gave extremely wealthy people an incredible amount of political power that they could wield fairly covertly. Um, and it turns out that a lot of extremely wealthy people are fucking nuts. Um, <laughs> That's like a trend we know. Yeah. I mean, the short story is that we shouldn't have billionaires. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to keep telling the slightly longer version of the story. Um, so obviously the Koch brothers, whose fortune is partly from fossil fuel interests, are a really big part of this. And... Uh, the journalist Jane Mayer wrote a lot about this in her 2016 book, Dark Money, which I really recommend if you want to get very anxious at night. Um, <laughs> so one of the big things they've done is they brought all these other far-right billionaires into this kind of evil nest of billionaires who pull their money and pour it into these shadowy foundations and think tanks and advocacy groups and legal programs that have these incredibly benign, patriotic-sounding names. So, you know, there there have been several investigations. There's a Greenpeace investigation that found that the Kochs put $25 million into climate denial, into groups promoting climate denial in just a three-year period. Um, there's another study, a Drexel study, found that between 2003 and 2010, 140 conservative foundations, um, mostly affiliated with the Koch family and the Scaife family, gave $558 million to climate denial projects. So um, fast forward to today, <laughs> Trump's win has really not done a lot to make this problem better. <laughs> um, the idea right now isn't necessarily to say climate change isn't happening at all, because that's sort of hard to argue at this point when it's like 70 degrees in February. But the idea right now is to foster the sense that there's confusion or major disagreement amongst scientists or cast doubt on the motives of the scientists themselves, which is really sad because climate scientists have the worst job. Yeah, climate scientists are not rolling in dough. No. They're not, like, happy. Their job is literally to watch the world die. <laughs> watch very closely yeah. and be like, the world is dying. Every and day. then everyone ignores <laughs> you. And have everyone ignore yeah. you. Yeah, and then they get, like, sort of questioned by Lamar Smith in a House Science Committee hearing as though they're criminals. Uh, so basically, some, some fun things that have happened recently. Um, for example, a Coke-backed think tank, the Heartland Institute, um, which is well known for sort of peddling climate denial. They have this crazy annual conference where they sort of 
shriek about it. They sent mailers to 25,000 teachers across the United States, urging them to consider that the science behind climate change is not settled. I love, like, so many pamphlets being like, but consider this. (laughs) (laughs) But let's look at both sides. Yeah. I mean, another fun thing is that the New York Times just hired um, a, as their latest, columnist, a guy that doesn't believe in climate change. Um, His opinion deserves to be heard. Yeah. (laughs) So in a way that this sort of this effort has been sort of effective at fostering the sense that there are two sides to this debate or that it even is a debate. There isn't a debate that humans are extremely likely causing severe climate change. So there are a lot of characters in this world, like really terrible characters. There's this guy, William Happer, who is a um, retired Princeton physicist. He's not a climate scientist. He sort of presents himself as an expert on climate science. He's often sort of cited by Breitbart, um, and he was reportedly under consideration to be Trump's science advisor. And I haven't been able to figure out where that is going. It doesn't really seem like they need a science advisor (laughs) um, because they already have a lot of people telling them that science doesn't exist. (laughs) Jared Kushner is the new science advisor. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that announcement. (laughs) So I ended up writing about him. Jezebel Reader ended up getting in a a weird email fight with him um, where he told her that the, quote, demonization of CO2 really differs little from the Nazi persecution of the Jews, the Soviet extermination of class enemies, or ISIL slaughter of infidels. And he said that before, which is the crazy part. This is like his talking point. This is is something he enjoys saying. Eventually, I asked him for comment, and he sent me a really interesting paragraph. (laughs) Um, He said... If I understand the thrust of the article you're writing, your organization is well-named. The original Queen Jezebel had an innocent man, Nabot, smeared and stoned to death so her husband, King Ahab, could steal his vineyard. He spelled vineyard wrong. You can smear me, as the original Jezebel did, but if you want to physically destroy me, you may find it a bit harder. He also said, if you have the courage, quote this paragraph in full. I was like, William, I have the courage. (laughs) I'm going to do it. (laughs) And you can read Ellie's whole article on Jezebel. What's the title? Possible Trump science advisor compares climate science to ISIS, tells us Jezebel is well-named. It's really a trip. I love to read it. And the scary part of this is that a lot of these people are now working in the government and sort of infiltrating the EPA and taking over the organization that's supposed to protect us from them. That, I mean— this is an Orwellian nightmare. It's so it's, Orwellian. I mean, very obviously, it's like a man who doesn't believe women exist, <laughs> but replacing Cecile Richards as the head of Planned Parenthood. Like, obviously, you're going to shut it down. One thing about this that is uh, becoming very clear to me is that people are very willing, not me, pay me as much as you want. I'll never say anything against climate change. But some people are very willing to be paid and then to say, okay, this is not a problem that's going to affect me. I can ignore it and make sure everyone else is affected. And these are already rich people, not people who are going to be the most affected by it immediately. Prachi, who is going to be the most affected by it? Well, 
I actually wanted you guys to guess. It's not going to be the billionaires. For oh, sure. it's not going. <laughs> not Ooh. going to surprise. <laughs> it's not going to be them. They're not going to be in their bunkers. Although there was like a blog maybe last year or two years ago that Gia Tolentino wrote that was the all the measures that Donald Trump is taking to protect his golf course from climate change. A lot of measures is the answer. <laughs> the answer that's is the real, a lot. That's the, 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 he's the real victim <laughs> yeah. in all of his golf course and everyone who visits it. So basically everybody gets fucked over when the environment goes to shit. But black people and people of color in general get fucked over the worst. The biggest predictor that somebody lives next to pollution in America is actually your race. So environmental racism is a real thing. There have been a series of reports since the 1980s that have found, like time and time again, that black communities are the ones that are most affected by hazardous waste dump sites. So, you know, in 1987, one study found that communities near a waste dump site were three times as likely to be a minority community, and that race was the top predictor of whether a person lives near a hazardous waste dump site. And in 2007, another report found that the problem was actually getting worse, that most communities near hazardous waste dump sites are populated by people of color. Um, And if we look at communities like Flint, for example, that's a community where 80% of the community is black, and it's a lower-income community and in a white state, and they've been complaining about water contamination for several years now, and they've gone pretty much ignored. So the effect of living this close to pollution has really serious health consequences, which then impacts medical bills and somebody's ability to basically live in this world. Um, So black kids are 10 times more likely to die of asthma than white kids, for example. Um, Another study in 2009 by the CDC found that 11.2% of black kids and 4% of Mexican-American kids die of lead poisoning compared to only 2.3% of white kids. So, and then lead poisoning can also lead to serious health problems, even for the pe- for the kids who don't die, when they can have anemia and seizures and brain development issues that stay with them throughout their lives. So this has serious consequences, and this is a result of a lot of different really racist policies, one of which is the federal housing policy in the 1930s that actually refused to back loans for back- black people or their neighbors which resulted in black people being stuck in urban centers closer to where pollution is, and white people could flee to the suburbs and basically escape the pollution or risk of anything happening to their health. So in summation, again, everything that that (laughs) Trump is doing hurts people of color. Um, Ellie, every week on our podcast, that is the conclusion. It's a depressing conclusion. Every way we can make poor people and minorities suffer, we're gonna. Yeah. Is kind of what's happening. That's the Trump flag. Yeah. Joining us is Lindy Fon Moodyus, 
a director of program management at the Environmental Defense Fund. She also serves on the board of Out for Sustainability, an LGBTQ community for environmental and social action. Lindy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you talk about what Trump's environmental executive order will actually look like in practice? Because I know Obama's clean power plan hasn't actually really even been implemented. So will anything change or look different or will anything not change? There's two components that everyday Americans are going to see, um, especially Americans who live in lower income communities. And whether that is in Detroit or Biloxi or um, on the coast of Florida or Louisiana, everyday Americans are going to see environmental impacts from t- for, two, for two reasons. First, the executive order which will actually change, like I said, all of that natural gas, oil, fossil fuel exploration on public lands. Um, That has impacts, you know, whether it's um, toxic ash from mountaintop removal in West Virginia and Tennessee to methane emissions increasing. Um, And we know that those, for example, in the Southwest impact um, low-income communities disproportionately so. And methane is not a great greenhouse gas for scientific reasons, but it's also not great to breathe. The other component that impacts communities around the country is Donald Trump's um, proposal for slashing the EPA budget. And that will have some real world, pretty devastating impacts on communities, especially communities around the Great Lakes region and in the Gulf of Mexico. They'll probably see the largest impacts So what I think we have to think about when we're talking about environmental justice and climate change and what's happening in politics right now is we have to think about not only the regulations, but also what happens if we totally defund the EPA or take away 30 percent of the EPA's funding, as uh, President Trump has proposed. So what does happen if, if we basically don't have a functional EPA? I'll try to give you a couple of examples. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with some friends about the Great Lakes and um, Flint, Michigan, and all the water quality issues we have in this country. And um, you may have seen a couple of weeks ago that the EPA actually gave Flint a multi-million dollar grant to fix some of the service lines that were causing the leaded water in the first place. Um, Programs like that will go away. So programs where the EPA is actually helping communities address environmental problems, address pollution problems, those are on the chopping block. If you read closely the sort of proposal from the Trump administration. Another really great example is water pollution in the San Francisco and Bay Delta watershed. So I live in the San Francisco area and the EPA provides oversight for projects in the watershed. They also provide um, funding for control of water pollution, destruction of wetlands, and Superfund cleanup. And all of those things work together to make sure that our drinking water is safe. And the budget cuts would eliminate those programs. And so they, they leave a vulnerable community like Oakland that doesn't have a ton of money to do that work on its own. Very vulnerable. And then if you're thinking all about sort of climate change specifically, there's There's two things that hurt communities when it comes to climate change. There's flooding and greater um, natural disasters, and there's air quality. And what you have in America is a lot of communities of color 
historically established in flood-prone areas. And especially if you look at the Southern United States after slavery ended, you know, I'm also a history nerd, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll throw in a little history for you. You know, after slavery ended, what you had was communities of color establishing themselves where they could. And those lands were often the floodplains or the swampy land that nobody else wanted. And you have these wonderful, vibrant communities now that are incredibly threatened by sea level rise and natural disasters. And you saw that with Hurricane Katrina. You've seen that with Hurricane Sandy. And you see that in rural communities as well. So increased flooding, increased natural disasters is going to disproportionately affect communities of color. Um, air pollution already disproportionately affects communities of color. And if we don't curb air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions, we're just letting those people bear that disproportionate impact of our energy consumption. Well, so you already talked a little bit about how these policies are going to affect marginalized communities. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more in detail about uh, the history behind that. So why do they historically affect marginalized communities so much more? And what is going to happen to some of these communities like Flint, for example, or even Standing Rock, where there's now a pipeline being built uh, that originally was planned to be built farther south in a white community? It's, it's hard to make generalizations about all of all of those or any of those because each one is really one of the weird and hard things about environmental work is that it's it's incredibly specific to the environmental conditions of where you are. So um, you have to look at each one specifically. And if you look at something like Standing Rock, what happened there is not only a constitutional issue, in my opinion, as a lawyer, where you have the uh, the United States government ignoring um, a treaty, um, but you also have a issue of environmental justice because you now have a community that has been told we don't really care about what happens if there's a spill. Um, so there may never be a spill, and nothing may ever happen, or there may be a disastrous spill, and that community will be disproportionately affected. Um, what we saw in Flint and is, is what we see all over the country. If, for example, there, there was a big crisis with the D.C. drinking water in 2001. It affected about 25,000 homes. Um, it's ongoing. Um, and so, you know, we, we see this in Syracuse. We see this in Flint. We see this in cities all across the United States. And the real problem with... Um, with the cities is infrastructure, um, specifically the old leaded pipes that are um, taking the water from the treatment plant to your home, to your tap. And as we saw in the case of Flint, the decision to switch the water supply and then not account for the more polluted water source they were switching to led to a problem with the chemical coating that had been protecting the lead pipes against erosion. And so you had all the water get contaminated with lead the EPA just gave Flint a multi-million dollar, $100 million grant to fix that. Um, and that is why um, the budget cuts to the EPA are problematic because communities that don't have the money to fix these problems themselves, communities where you have a lot of people living in apartment buildings, communities where you have a lower tax base, 
those communities are the kinds of communities that really need this help from the EPA. So can you talk about on a more lo- a bigger scale what the longer term mm-hmm. Im- this is the scary question what the longer term <laughs> impacts of repealing all of these regulations and maybe dropping out of the Paris climate agreement what what's going to happen in 10 to 20 years <laughs> I always hate when environmentalists sound like alarmists but we know that when we look at America in the 1970s and the air pollution we had all over the country that we've we've come a long way. I was talking to a friend who's from um, Ohio, and she was telling me that, you know, the Cuyahoga River used to catch on fire when she was a little kid. And she's in her 30s. So it wasn't that long ago that we had horrifying water pollution in this country. And we still have a, a really pretty atrocious asthma epidemic in this country. Um, we see that one in 12 American children, one in 14 American adults, have asthma and air pollution is a major trigger for that. So a lot of the environmental work that the EPA is doing and that these regulations that have been cut in in the latest round of executive orders were designed to protect, you know, we still have these problems and we still need to fix them. And so by allowing pollution levels to go up, President Trump's order will literally cost thousands of American lives. We have statistics about this, but we're talking thousands of lives from added heart attacks, asthma attacks, increased sick days. And then there's the larger picture of what climate change can do to the United States. We've already seen an increase in extreme weather events. All the scientific evidence tells us that that's going to keep happening. And then we, you know, we really risk losing out in terms of the health of our kids, (laughs) the next generation, if we allow air pollution to increase rather than curbing it. I want to talk for a second about the history of the EPA. Um, The EPA itself has not always been on the side of the environment. And right now I'm thinking mostly of the EPA under Ann Gorsuch Burford, uh, who was the mother of this current Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Um, Mm -hmm. She was quickly ousted. And I'm wondering how the EPA under Trump and Pruitt is any different from her time where she was very anti-regulation and gutted the EPA. Okay, that's a great question, actually. Um, I have the privilege to work for someone who um, here at EDF who was at the EPA for 20 years. And um, she wrote a very moving op-ed opposing Scott Pruitt's nomination, which was, by the way, the first time that uh, EDF ever opposed a nominee to the EPA. And in, and one of the points she made in her op-ed was that um, it didn't go well. <laughs> When Ann Gorsuch ran the EPA, she had to resign under all kinds of public outcry. And it was a very embarrassing moment for President Reagan, actually. And the the point that I think that makes is that Americans will not stand for a weak EPA or an EPA that doesn't protect their health. And we, we've seen that in polling recently. If you if you ta- if you pull them across the country, and this cuts across political party and race and income and gender, are against cuts to the EPA. They're against an EPA that doesn't actually protect public health and safety. So when, at least when I talk about the environment and climate change, it feels like we're kind of at the mercy of our governments, and we're powerless to do anything on our own, and we're just like. 
if a policy changes and it ruins the earth, we just have to hang on to the earth until it explodes. Um, <laughs> is this right? Is there anything that, like, our listeners or that I can do to be proactive? I, I, I'm not surprised that when you think of climate change, you think of doom and gloom and the earth exploding, because I think a lot of the rhetoric around climate change has been that. And I think climate change is obviously bad. It's going to have some major consequences. Even the U.S. military has started speaking up about how climate change will be a national security threat for America, not only in the United States itself, but all over the world. So it's a serious issue that I think we should all be paying attention to. And you're not wrong to feel that way. But I think it's also a manageable issue. And there are things that we can do that we see other countries doing to fix climate change that are really important and helpful. So one of the things that I like to tell people is easy to do. Write your senator, write your member of Congress, write your legislator, your local legislator. Let them know that you don't support the cuts to the EPA. And um, in terms of specific problems, um, a lot of the environmental work that's done in this country is done on a local level. So get get informed about what's going on in your community and um, talk to your town council, your city hall um, about what matters to you. So um, you don't have to spend money and put a solar panel on your roof. Maybe you can't do that because you live in an apartment. But you can do things every day. You, the, the human being, the individual, can do things every day to reduce your carbon footprint. Sometimes it's as simple as um, taking public transportation. It can also be as simple as thinking about what kind of cereal you buy support those better farming practices, you can make a difference because you can speak with your pocketbook. That was a lot of great nuanced advice, but what I heard is that I need to find a roof and put a solar panel on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I full disclosure, I live in an apartment, so I can't put a solar panel on my roof. Same. So I have to think of all the other ways that I can, I can do... Um, something good for the environment uh, when I uh, when I'm living my normal everyday life. <laughs> now it's time for the best segment of our show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you how we're experiencing even just fleeting moments of joy in what is otherwise a joyless political climate. And we have Ellie still here for this. I am here for this. I hope to diversify how we're handling the dicks with how you're handling the dicks. Uh, how am I handling the dicks? Sometimes I will pick up my cat and just sort of carry him around <laughs> the apartment. Um, just walk him around like a little baby. <laughs> um, I also do Pilates. <laughs> you're a new Pilates fiend. I'm, I love Pilates. Can't get enough. Tell us just like one thing you've learned. Basically, what I've learned is you you pull this stuff with your hands <laughs> and you push it with your feet and you focus on like nine different body parts at once. And it's a real, it's a trip. <laughs> That's a real inspiring just like thought for the Trump administration. You pull with your hands and you push with your feet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's just like good wisdom we can take with us into mm. our days. Prachi, what about you? So after several weeks of basically giving up, I have 
found I have found renewed hope. Just like generally um, giving up. Yeah, generally giving up. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah, I have okay. been like failing in general for the past couple of weeks. I last week I read Dr. Willie Parker's book, his new memoir, which is called Life's Work: A Moral Argument for Choice, and it's really really good. Uh, and it and then I interviewed him and then listened to him talk with Gloria Steinem and there was a bunch of audience questions and I mean he's this incredible abortion provider who's a black man from the south and is also a devout Christian and he makes a very moral argument for abortion and just the way he talks about abortion and the way he talks about the protesters and how he deals with the violence was really inspiring and it made me think about just like kind of you know, recentered me and made me think about like compassion and who I want to be and all sorts of other really self-helpy things that I'm not going to get into. But it was a really great talk. And so I've, I've, and I've been reading, like I've been reading Audre Lorde and James Baldwin and just people who have dealt with all of this shit their entire lives and before. And I'm finding it very comforting and very like very centering, very grounding. It's good to think about the good people sometimes because we we do spend our whole day, every day, thinking about the dicks. That's so true. Prachi, you said that was going to be cheesy. It wasn't cheesy at all. It was great. Thank you. It was, it was, I sounded was inspired. A lot <laughs> I felt so inspired. Mine is not that. I don't usually eat meat, but this weekend I ate a steak. That's my how to handle the dicks. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just need a little bit of iron. I'm always, I mean, thank you. I'm always like half on a diet. So I never, when I go to a restaurant, I'm never like, I'm going to get a steak. But this weekend. Get the steak. You went for it. You indulged. I did. What kind of steak did you get? Okay. It was actually a mistake. It was at a French restaurant, which was a mistake. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) You guys are right. And I, (laughs) okay. So it was a steak au poivre, which is like in pepper sauce. I don't like that. <laughs> but I but did you how did you feel about it after? I felt medium, but I could okay. have felt better. Okay. I mean, I still am proud of myself for getting it. So maybe give yourself another opportunity to make a mistake. <laughs> Sorry. I wish I hadn't made that joke <laughs> twice. <gasps> Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Big Time Dicks. And thank you so much to our guest, Lindy Fon Mutius in the Environmental Defense Fund. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes so other people can find it and subscribe. And just, like, recommend it. If you're at a party, like, tell people. You're like, wow, I've been learning so much. I'm having such a good time. I'm laughing on my commute. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, and wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio, and we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. The episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. <laughs> <laughs>